All right, I'm Glenn McDormand, and this is ATAS, your Don't Eat the Sugar Speculative Fiction Book Club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we are talking about the Shirley Jackson novel, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which was originally published in 1962. This is the first book I'm covering that was selected by our Patreon supporters, and that makes me very excited about the shape of things to come on this show. No, I've read We Have Always Lived in the Castle before, but it was about a decade ago. I first encountered Shirley Jackson in high school, like I think so many people did, reading her beautiful, magnificent short story, The Lottery. And when I was first seriously getting into horror fiction, I, of course, read her awesome haunted house story, The Haunting of Hill House, which is super famous and I think even has become more super famous since the Netflix TV adaptation that bears the same name. But I have a lot of nostalgia for this particular book. The The copy of this that I have, a Penguin Classics copy, is one that I picked up at the Tattered Cover, the great independent bookstore in Denver, around 2007. And it was really great for me to pull this off the shelf, crack open the covers, find old receipts in there that I've been using as bookmarks, and take a real trip down memory lane. But this is a really interesting book for this book club podcast, being as it is a speculative fiction book club podcast, because as some listeners no doubt have had a little bit of anxiety about, there is really a question of whether or not we have always lived in the castle is even speculative fiction or if it's just uh, an American Gothic story, a sort of family saga, a sort of mood piece exploring a, a little slice of the the rot at the core of American life. And that's a question I'm going to largely ignore during the recap, but it is one that I'm going to take up during the themes and motifs segment. And I'm very interested in continuing that conversation on the forum. But let's get into it. So take a deep breath and let's get ready for We Have Always Lived in the Castle. My name is Mary Catherine Blackwood. I am 18 years old, and I live with my sister Constance. I have often thought that with any luck at all, I could have been born a werewolf, because the two middle fingers on both my hands are the same length. But I have had to be content with what I had. I dislike washing myself, and dogs, and noise. I like my sister Constance, and Richard Plantagenet, and Amanita Phalloides, the death cup mushroom. Everyone else in my family is dead. What an opening, right? Jackson is a master of this. I think everyone has heard the first line of The Haunting of Hill House, even if they haven't actually read the book. And this paragraph, this opening paragraph of this novel sets up everything that's going to be important for the story. Immediately, we want to know what has happened to the Blackwood family and does it have anything to do with poisonous mushrooms? We're teased also with the existence of the supernatural here with this talk of werewolves. And this is going to be an important element as we go on. So this story is the first person account of Mary Catherine Blackwoods. Uh, we're actually just going to call her Maricat. So it's the story of the last few days of what Maricat regards as her normal life. The Blackwoods are a bourgeois family in rural New England. They live in a, a big Victorian house on the outskirts of a village and they think of themselves as more connected to other wealthy families in the region than they do to the inhabitants of their village itself. And we'll talk more about this in the next segment. Six years ago, most of Maricat's family died. Her parents, her aunt, and her younger brother Thomas sat down for dinner, and they wound up eating some arsenic that had been put in the sugar bowl. Maricat survived because she had been sent to her room without supper for having misbehaved earlier in the evening, 
And Mary Cat's older sister, Constance, survived because she didn't take any sugar. And Uncle Julian also survived because he didn't use very much of the sugar. But he did still ingest some arsenic, and so he's lost some of his motor functions as a result. And he seems also to have lost some of his mental faculties, though whether that's because of the arsenic or because of the trauma of living through this tragedy remains unclear. It's it's something of a mystery throughout the book. Now, as I'm sure has been your experience in your life, arsenic does not usually get into sugar bowls on its own. And so this is clearly a case of murder, or at least a case of manslaughter, if we'd be willing to believe that the person who put the arsenic in the sewer didn't do that with malintent. Constance had cooked most of the meal, and, and since she was the only one present at the dinner to have not eaten the sugar... Suspicion pretty naturally fell on her. She was even charged with the crime, and she stood trial for it, though ultimately Constance was found not guilty by a jury. Gradually, during the course of the novel, it becomes clear that it was Maricat who did this, and that she knew perfectly well what she was doing. She was angry about being punished, uh, something that seems to have happened a lot to her, and she wanted to punish her family in turn. And it also becomes clear that Constance knows this, and, and always has. This is not a dramatic revelation for her. But in the village, everyone believes that Constance murdered her family and, and got off on some kind of legal technicality. And since the trial, Constance has been shut up inside the family mansion and just wants to isolate herself from the world. Uncle Julian, though, is, is not as withdrawn, but he also isn't physically or psychologically capable of going out into the world. So he also is kind of trapped in the house. And so it's left to, to Maricat to perform the very important twice-weekly chore of getting groceries and especially of getting library books. And therefore, it is Maricat who bears the brunt of the villagers' suspicions and, and hatred. Early in the book, Jackson gives us an uncomfortable scene in which Maricat stops into a diner for a cup of coffee. This is something she always does on her errands, and is besieged by two middle-aged men who tease her and, and bully her, really. The owner of the diner tells them to stop, and, and she does mean it in the moment. But as soon as Maricat has left, the owner laughs along with the bullies at this situation. She laughs at Maricat and the tragedy of her family. And at other times, Maricat is also teased by children who have a sort of nursery rhyme about how Constance put poison in the tea to murder her family. And again, when this happens, we see an adult not stopping these children from bullying Maricat and in fact being complicit in the bullying. But this behavior by the villagers is really in stark contrast to the behavior of the other wealthy families in the region. One particular woman, Helen Clark, and that's Clark with an E, so you know that she's fancy. Helen Clark comes for tea every Friday, and she does this to check on Constance, to, to see if she's okay. We're privy to a couple of these visits in the story, and, and, and one time Helen even tries to get Constance to enter the world again, and, and explicitly here she's interested in finding a husband for Constance, or, or at least talking Constance into being open to finding a husband, because Constance uh, presumably is approaching her mid-twenties and will soon be ineligible for marriage in this type of society. Now, Mary Cat does not like this idea, of course, and really the thing that we see again and again about Mary Cat is that she likes this life that she has with Constance and Uncle Julian. She likes not having parents. She likes that Constance does the cooking, and more specifically, that Constance will make whatever Mary Cat asks her to, and even cooks cakes for her cat. And Mary Cat likes their routine. 
Each day of the week is set aside for a specific task, such as tidying up or going into town, and so on. So Maricat feels a little threatened by Helen Clark's attempt to destabilize this perfect fantasy life that she is living as a result of the heinous murder, the heinous poisoning of her family. And so she turns to magic, to sympathetic magic, the kind of magic in which material objects and even certain words can have power over other objects and other people. Mary Cat buries objects around their property and sometimes nails things to trees, books and other objects. And she does all this to form a, a magical barrier that won't allow anyone to disturb the Blackwood family. We learn here, too, that Mary Cat often sleeps outside. She's got a, a little cave in the woods where she likes to hang out. And also, we learn that there is another house on the property, a, a summer home that was abandoned a decade or so ago because it had some kind of water damage but was never torn down for some reason, and that Mary Cat also hangs out here a lot. But all of this so far has been a setup for the real force of destabilization here, the, the real plot, the real action of the story. A cousin named Charles shows up at the house after his father has died and left him no inheritance, though he was clearly expecting one. Charles charms Constance and, and moves in, but it's clear to us that Charles is here because his father wasted his share of the inheritance that he himself had received, and that Charles wants to get at what is left of that, which is now under the control of Constance. And so here, Charles is, is basically moving in and wants to be in charge. Even though he's not lucid, Uncle Julian can sense that Charles is clearly up to no good, and Mary Cat sees through him even more plainly, and in, indeed Mary Cat even thinks of Charles as a ghost and a demon, and she tries to fight him directly with her sympathetic magic. And when that doesn't work, she takes to haunting him. She takes things out of his room and nails them to trees. She even dumps water on his bed and takes his things and moves them to the attic. And all of this is to make him feel unwanted, to, to make him feel unsafe and, and out of control, to make him decide to leave of his own volition. These actions, of course, don't have this effect. Charles is furious that Mary Cat has done this, and he seems really determined to send Mary Cat and Uncle Julian away at this point. But before he is able to bring his own plan to fruition, a fire starts in his bedroom where he has left a pipe burning, or at least where someone has left his pipe burning. The fire department comes and, and puts out the fire, but they're not able to do this before the upper story of the house has been rendered uninhabitable. The chief of the fire department is actually, it turns out, one of the men who bullied Mary Cat in the diner. And as a crowd gathers around the house, many people are shouting for the fire department to just let this place burn so that the Blackwoods will have to leave the village. But the fire chief explains that they are the fire department. They have to put out the fire. It's a sort of moral responsibility and just a common decency that drives them here. But then, as soon as the fire is out, he leads the villagers in looting and pillaging the house. They break the windows. They smash the dishes. They bring books and furniture out on the lawn and just smash and tear them up. And during this pillaging, the chaos, the tension of this, the stress... Uncle Julian dies. It's a stroke or, or, or something like that. It's not an act of direct violence. And at the same time, Charles, who really this whole time has been screaming about the, the, the safe where the Blackwood ladies keep their money, uh, Charles just disappears, right? Once there's nothing to be gained here, he vanishes. He's not interested in the family anymore. But even in the, the thick of this, there's really a kind of 
mob riot, Mary Cat takes charge of Constance and she gets her out of there before any harm can come to her. And together they spend the night in Mary Cat's little cave. The next morning, Constance and Mary Cat move back into the house and they just begin to clean up after the damage. And at, at, at this point, a reader is probably wondering about things like police reports and insurance claims. I, I certainly was. But the Blackwood sisters don't bother with any of that. They can't live upstairs anymore, but they can retreat to the back of the ground floor and just live their lives centered around the kitchen, even while much of the house is destroyed around them. And they just decide to board up the house and to use their robust garden that they have in the back and the generations of canned food that they have in the basement and to just learn to do without meat and to make clothes out of tablecloths and curtains and so on and to just never leave their property again to to hide here to live in this ruined burnt out shell of a of a house but these sisters aren't truly alone in the world helen clark comes to check on them in fact several times but they hide from her and after one of helen clark's visits mary cat even creates a, a ramshackle wooden barrier between the sides of the house and the, the groves of, of trees so that no one will be able to get around to the back and and get in or disturb them in any way and this really feels like the moment where the house is transforming into the the castle of the the title it's it's a home it's a house that is actively being fortified as a, a defensive structure at this moment and after this has happened after a, a little while later villagers begin to show up and they don't want to talk to the blackwood sisters what they do is leave baskets of food at the door with notes apologizing for damaging their home and for for looting it and and often they'll make reference to specific objects like dishes or the harp or something like that that they know they were responsible for damaging and as even more time passes, the fence around the vast Blackwood estate is demolished, and people begin to use their property for their own purposes. They, they walk across it on their daily business, or even just for pleasure, and, and they even picnic on it. And these people are aware that Constance and Mary Cat still live in the house, even as it is becoming covered in vines. And Mary Cat even hears picnickers telling scary stories about her and her sister, and how they poison children, or sometimes even eat them. And while these are just stories, and at first are, are often told as jokes or you know very poor parenting moves, they do eventually take on a life of their own. And the story ends with a, a group of boys messing around near the house, as boys will do, and one of them is dared by the others to approach the front door and to sing the nursery rhyme about Constance poisoning the tea. And later that night, someone leaves a basket of eggs for them with a note that reads, He didn't mean it. Please. And so in the end here, we see that the villagers have become afraid of the Blackwood house and the ladies who live in it. They're genuinely concerned that Constance and Maricat are going to come out and, and get this boy to, to harm him, to take some kind of vengeance on him in some way, unless they appease them by this offering of food. And the story ends with Maricat and Constance joking about how difficult it would be to properly cook a child. And then the last line of the story is Maricat saying, Oh, Constance, we are so happy. As usual, I've identified two themes or motifs in this novel that I want to talk about. Jackson has written a great American Gothic novel for us, a, a chilling story that explores the darkness and the rot at the core of American family and community life. And there's a lot to be said about this, but I, I just want to focus, and, and really, I, I want to focus on this only briefly. 
on the issue of class and of intolerance, and this certainly is at the surface of the book, and it's something that Jackson herself spoke about in regard to this novel. Jackson and her husband moved to rural Vermont when her husband took a teaching job at a nearby liberal arts college, and the people in the village reacted to them with what she described as a reflexive anti-Semitism and anti-intellectualism. While this book doesn't deal with anti-Semitism directly, the Blackwoods are about as Anglo as you can get, Jackson does address the issue of class division in this village. The villagers have good reasons to want to distance themselves from the Blackwood family following this grotesque murder. But these villagers go out of their way to be cruel to Mary Cat, to an 18-year-old young woman whom they don't even think committed the crime. And this is contrasted by the other members of the regional elite who show compassion toward Constance and even want to rehabilitate her into their society, even though she is the one who was charged with the crime, and many people seem to believe that she really did it and that she was only found not guilty on a technicality. And if we want to think about intolerance in religious terms, as as Jackson suggests, then it's clear that the elite of the region are the people who act with the Christian values of kindness and charity and mercy, while the villagers, the the people who in Jackson's own life have a reflexive anti-Semitism, are behaving in a pointedly unchristian manner. What we see from the villagers instead in this novel is a, a real fear and a real distrust of people who are different from them and perhaps also a resentment of their wealth. And we, we don't get any backstory here. We don't know how the Blackwood family arrived at its wealth. We don't know if perhaps there's some salacious story about the first paterfamilias making his money by shady means that might be in the background of this resentment. We don't know if there's some sort of dispute with a labor union, layoffs, uh, profiteering, and, and that sort of thing. As Jackson presents it, this is simply a matter of othering. The Blackwoods live differently than they do, they have a, a library and they read books, and, and they speak differently. And ultimately, this means that even though they have lived outside this village for at least two generations, they're not regarded as part of the village community. And this is true for the other members of their class as well, people who send their kids to private schools and often do their grocery shopping in a bigger town nearby. So as these two worlds physically overlap, they simply don't socially. And this creates a real disturbance, a real isolation, an internal isolation. And indeed, we really might see all of this as one aspect of a much larger theme of isolation. And, and this is something I'll look forward to discussing on the forum. But I really want to spend the bulk of the time in this segment thinking about genre, thinking about what type of story Shirley Jackson is telling here. And especially the question I raised at the top of the show, is this even a speculative fiction novel? But before I get to that, let's talk about this novel as a haunted house story, or really as a commentary on what a haunted house story is. At the beginning of this novel, there's nothing about it to suggest that we are dealing with a haunted house story, even with the mention of werewolves right at the start. It's only in the final act that we realize that the castle in the title of the book has been the centerpiece of the story from the start, and that we are witnessing not just the disruption of Mary Cat's life and the death of Uncle Julian, but the transformation of this house from a, a stately and lived-in Victorian mansion to a decrepit and scary haunted house, a feature of local lore, a place to be shunned and feared. And as we encounter the final scene in this book, we realize that the, the Blackwood Mansion, this castle, is regarded as a haunted house by the locals, and we've just read its origin story. This novel is the answer to the question of how a house becomes haunted. And what Jackson suggests here is that it's about the stories that people tell. 
but that it's especially about the way that locals isolate that house, even as people are still living in it. People who've been the victims of their violence. And the people who perpetrated that violence are ashamed of that act. They're ashamed of the way that they treated the Blackwood sisters. But they can't face their own actions directly, and they certainly can't face their victims. And this shame becomes fear and isolation. And that's how a house becomes haunted. So the book is certainly a commentary on the genre of haunted house stories, a genre that definitely falls under the uh, the umbrella of speculative fiction. But is there actually anything speculative going on here? Many readers have long questioned whether Mary Cat Blackwood is actually a ghost. And this remains an open question. And I, I want to go through some of the evidence before I offer my own reading or my own answer to this question. Near the end of the story, when Charles is still hanging around, Uncle Julian gets very upset that Charles is pretending as if his niece Mary Catherine is there with them because, as everyone knows, Mary Catherine died five years ago while she was living in an orphanage during Constance's murder trial. Now, this is a great moment. It's a real sixth sense moment. When we as readers suddenly realize that Mary Cat and Uncle Julian have indeed never once interacted with each other... But then he calmed down from that excitement, because you remember that all sorts of people are interacting with Mary Cat. I mean, she goes into town to buy their groceries, and she very definitely carries them back to the house. And she talks to people along the way, she buys coffee at the diner, and Charles is very much aware of her. And at the same time, Uncle Julian is in poor health, and he seems to have trouble with his memory, and even with understanding what is real and what is not. But I do think that there is more evidence for the case that Mary Cat is a ghost. I, I won't go through things like the voice of the character and uh, questions about her age and so on, though I'm looking forward to talking about that on the forum. I just want to talk about what I think is the strongest piece of evidence. And this is something that comes in the final chapter as the house is transforming and so are the lives of the Blackwood sisters. And I'm just going to read this passage and then I'll explicate it a little bit. I discovered that I was no longer allowed to go to the creek. Uncle Julian was there, and it was much too far from Constance. I never went farther away than the edge of the woods, and Constance went only as far as the vegetable garden. I was not allowed to bury anything more, nor was I allowed to touch stone. Now, there's some marvelous use of the passive voice here, so we never know who it is that is not allowing Mary Cat to do these things, and it's very easy to read this and just assume that it's Constance acting as the authority figure in the family, especially as this paragraph goes on to be about something else entirely. But I think we have here the notion that Mary Cat is indeed a ghost and that she is supernaturally tethered to Constance. She can only go so far from her sister. And it seems that that distance and also her ability to interact with the physical world have been much diminished as time has passed. The business with Uncle Julian here is also really interesting. I take this to mean that the family members are buried on the property, either near the creek or, or maybe in between the creek and the house, and that Mary Cat can't go there because of something about the nature of Uncle Julian's own spirit. And indeed, while it is never clear in the text, it seems to me that Julian knows full well that Mary Cat is the one who poisoned everyone, that it was Mary Cat who killed his wife. And that knowledge and perhaps his very strong feelings, his, his deep trauma about knowing that his niece did this, are what have rendered Mary Cat's ghost invisible to him. And even after his death, he, I think he seems to have some power over her. 
Now, as I said, there are other passages that we could explore on this topic, but I'm really looking forward to doing that more on the forum. So I'll close out this section by saying that I think Jackson is using the suggestion that Mary Cat is a ghost to reinforce her understanding of what a haunted house is. The house has had a ghost in it for six years, but that's not what makes it haunted. The house only really becomes haunted when outsiders begin to treat it that way. And it's that treatment that is also really making Constance a ghost, even as she is still very much a living person. And I think that's a good place to leave behind our segment on themes and motifs and and move into talking about the real strengths of this book. I do not think you will be surprised to hear that I love this book. I think it is magnificent. I'm a sucker for commentary on genre and also meta stories. I I loved the beginning place for this too, but I think this novel's main strength is in Jackson's storytelling. The prose is just fantastic, but everyone knows that already, of course, but Jackson does something here that even other great wordsmiths are unable to pull off. She gives Mary Kent Blackwood a strong and distinct voice in this first person story, and She's able to genuinely present the world to us through the eyes of this first-person narrator. And and we even come to believe what Mary Cat believes and to sympathize with her, even as our suspicions that she's a psychopathic monster are affirmed. And we really do feel bad for her. We want Charles to go away. We want her life to continue as normal, even once we realize that Constance caters to Mary Cat's whims, at least in part, because she's afraid of her little sister. And this is just a brilliant move. And ultimately, Jackson gives us a haunted house story as a a type of dramatic origin story, while also giving us a ghost story from the perspective of the ghost herself, at least in my reading of the text. And all of this is packaged in exciting, beautiful, accessible prose. It's a narrative that just moves seamlessly, even though there are actually a lot of seams that stitch this story together. It's a short novel. My edition is 140 pages, and it's a quick and absolutely delightful read, at least if you don't mind thinking of murdery children as something that can be delightful, I guess. So finally, I'll I'll close out here really by saying that I think the ambiguity of Mary Cat's nature is a real strength of this book. If you like puzzles and mysteries, if you like not being quite sure what is actually happening in your stories, then this is going to be an absolutely thrilling ride for you. It certainly was for me, and I'm looking forward to reading more Shirley Jackson, either on this show or on some of the others that we do on the network. Well, that brings my review to a close. It was a shorter than usual review this time, but again, it was only a 140 page book. And this is also going to bring to a close the series of introductory episodes of ATAS. So from here on out, I'll be releasing episodes monthly, giving you time to read along with me. And some of the books that are coming up will be books that I've selected, but some of them will be books chosen by the network's Patreon supporters. And eventually the show is going to be 100% chosen by supporters. That's a moment I'm really, really looking forward to. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and motifs of this book, about Jackson's narrative technique, and of course, this massive unresolved question of whether Mary Cat is a ghost. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. Next month, we'll be reading the science fiction novel The Gods Themselves by Isaac Asimov. This book has been on my list for a very long time, and I'm really excited about it, and I hope you'll read along with me. But until then, remember, 
that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Thank you.